You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and co-owner of Sacred Chill West. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. Y'all, I have got an incredible episode to share with you guys today. So if you have been listening to The Mindful Minute for any length of time, you likely have heard me reference a book called Buddha's Brain. And specifically what I reference so frequently from this book is the stages of a meditation practice. And you'll remember that I talk about them as you send your partner out for milk, you need milk in the house, your partner's supposed to get it on their way home from work and your partner forgets. And then, but your reaction sort of is a metaphor for the different stages of a meditation practice. The author of that book, the creator of that metaphor, Dr. Rick Hansen, is my guest on today's podcast episode. So Dr. Hansen has just written a new book. It comes out on May 5th. The new book is called Neurodharma. And today we sit down and we talk about what he's put out into the world with this book. And y'all, it goes deep quick. This is a profound look at the inner workings, both the emotional inner workings, as well as the neurological inner workings of a meditation practice. He defines neurodharma as the truth of the mind grounded in the truth of the body. And we're going to spend some time getting into what he means by that, as well as these seven unique stages of awakening, these seven unique practices of awakening that he guides us through in this book. And I've read the book and I basically have underlined every sentence with a need to go back and explore it further. The very best part about this interview, in my personal opinion, is at the end, Dr. Hansen is going to guide us through a 10-minute meditation that walks us through all seven of these pieces of a practice. This is a huge meditation, y'all. You're going to want to save it. You're going to want to go back to it. I know I've repeated it several times since we recorded it as a way to really explore the potential for depth in your meditation practice as the way to explore the potential for contentment in your meditation practice. So you'll hear a lot of references to Buddhism, to the teachings of the Buddha in this interview. Um, And these practices you should know are seen through so many different traditions throughout time. So these seven practices of awakening that he outlines for us, we've seen in Christianity and Sufism and Buddhism, they continue to spread. And even in very secular ways, these practices are so relevant, especially for the moment we're in right now. I picked up this book and started reading it on day two of our quarantine here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was really truly surprised at how relevant even these deepest teachings were to the practicalities of our everyday life in this everyday and yet totally extraordinary moment that we are in. Neurodharma is being released into the world on May 5th, 
And if you pre-order it, you get a couple of special um, bonus gifts. You can check it out on his website, which is rickhansen.net. But the one I really want to point out is you get seven guided meditations from Rick as a bonus to pre-ordering this book. And if you like today's meditation, then it might be worth it for you to check out. So just a heads up on that little extra bonus goodie. So I hope y'all love today's episode. Take a listen, shoot me your feedback. I've got a few more exciting interviews coming down the pike for y'all. Let's dive in. So Rick, thank you so much for joining me on the Mindful Minute today. I'm really looking forward to diving into a discussion about NeuroDharma, your new book. That's great. And I am looking forward to this as well. That's right. It's a mutual cup of tea. Yes, I think Although so. Although in the coronavirus days, we'll each have our separate cup of tea eight feet apart. Exactly. Exactly. Recording from our respective homes across the country, that's right. right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So before we dive um, into the book itself, I was wondering if you would share a little bit about how you came to your meditation practice and what your practice looks like today. Sure. So I started in 1974. I was uh, 21 uh, at the tail end of UCLA, uh, uh, kind of a funny thing. Uh, I had 12 units left, a final quarter. And so I could do independent study. And I had been raised in a very secular, very vaguely Methodist way in the suburbs of Los Angeles. I had no real background in spirituality at all. On the other hand, I was catching the early wave of the human potential movement in the 70s in Los Angeles, early 70s. And so I thought, huh, maybe I'll just study Eastern philosophy and religion for a quarter. Who knew, right? Who knew? And who knew? Maybe some kind of Grace was involved in that. I don't know, because it changed my life to do that. So I began reading the classics, perennial philosophy, three pillars of Zen uh, in both the Hindu traditions and, and the Buddhist traditions and the melding of them in, in some sense in Vedanta. Uh, and that seemed immediately true to me. It just rang true, particularly the Buddhist uh, piercing, penetrating, simple, found in the early teachings of the Buddha, not obscure, not mystical or supernatural, just very direct, right? Things are continually changing. If you get with that program, you suffer less and harm less. On the other hand, if you fight the fact that our experiences are continually changing and try to cling to them or resist them, you will create suffering for yourself and others. Right? So that just rang true. That took me into meditation. It was pretty whimsical. I had long hair and gold rim glasses, and I was playing my bamboo flute sometimes in the hills of Southern California, but it was real. And as I say in the NeuroDharma book, uh, uh, I experienced what so many people experience when they just slow down to come home to themselves, which for me is the fundamental ground of any kind of meditation. There are many different forms, but just a coming home, uh, shifting out of doing into being, uh, allowing the sediments of the mind, the dust there to settle. And who are you when you are who you are when you're interfering as little as possible in the stream of consciousness, right? And uh, what could start to seem apparent at the deeper levels of all that, whoosh. So that, would, that began. And um, I was a pretty haphazard meditator for the next 20 years, but I was deeply engaged in practice uh, uh, in my own way, psycho-spiritual practice, and then beginning around 25 
years ago, I got much more involved in Buddhist practice. I studied its traditional roots. I became quite knowledgeable about those um, teachings and the applications of them to ourselves. And uh, here, I, here we are today. So if you've been doing something pretty seriously for 40 years, you know, things change for you. And so for myself, uh, like I'm meditative most of the time, actually. And um, then when I go into a formal practice, I tend to establish a lot of quiet and steadiness and presence, you know, just in familiar ways. Uh, I think it's really important to keep in mind cultivation and the ways in which we can actually gently help ourselves. We can gently nudge the mind stream so that whatever's beneficial, such as a feeling of compassion or kindness or a stability of presence or even insight into the radical transience of experiences, whatever it might be, or maybe our sense of uh, the unconditioned, perhaps you might even call it the divine. Well, when we're having those experiences, we can really help them become established in us. We can help them become stabilized. Bhavana in Sanskrit, we can cultivation, uh, we can cultivate things. So I, I'm, I'm certainly um, will try to help whatever's beneficial and wholesome to land. So increasingly it's established in me, I'm established in it, and increasingly that's kind of with me, you know, wherever I go. So I'll, I'll definitely engage that. And in particular, um, as you know from the book, um, I fairly readily feel that combination of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, and allness. And the edge of my practice is to be, just have a more stable uh, felt sense of timelessness, unconditioned unconditionality. So that's kind of the growing edge of my own practice. Mm. Before I start to ask you questions about the new book, I just want to share with you, you know, Buddha's Brain, which is a book you wrote yeah. quite a while ago at this point, um, yeah. was, I think, probably the first book I ever read that let me really understand clearly the science of mm. what I was feeling. Yeah. And I thought that was such a powerful experience to connect to, you know, comprehending what was going on, you know, biologically or physically or, you know, yeah. whatever the right word is for that yeah. in conjunction with what the felt experience was. And so then as I started to read this new book, I found that same combination of just like you said, very direct, very clear, but also so expansive. Mm. And so you go into these, oh, oh wait, actually re really what I want to ask is this, because I wrote this down, it's somewhere towards the beginning of neurodharma. And you wrote that for you, neurodharma means the truth of the mind grounded in the truth of the body. Yep. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that. That feels so tangible to me. Yeah, well, it, it relates to what you just said about the quote-unquote scientific understanding, which really means uh, understanding what is happening in the body while what is happening in the mind, alongside what is happening in the mind. And the truth, which is the fundamental meaning of the word dharma, which is just a word from India, it's not 
inherently religious or exclusive to Buddhism. So I, I brought it in as a pointing to um, the perennial wisdom really of the ages integrated with the most recent, coolest, neatest, most useful science. So neurodharma, right? Okay. So the truth of things is that what we are is a mind-body process, right? Uh, which mean, really means more broadly, we are a um, information plus experiences, immaterial and still existing form of consciousness. Consciousness is occurring within ordinary reality. Uh, squirrels are having experiences. We were talking earlier about the possible experiences of a spider or a crab, a cat, a monkey, a human. So experiences are occurring. They, they're natural phenomena. That's a really important thing to get. The experiences of a squirrel, the experiences of a cat may perhaps require something that beyond ordinary reality, some divine, some ground, someone, some cosmic consciousness. Don't know. I have my own notions about that, but inside the natural frame, inside ordinary reality, people don't resort to, to God to explain the hearing and seeing of a cat or a mouse or a squirrel much the same way for us. So it's quite something just to appreciate that right now what's happening, hearing, feeling, thinking, remembering, experiences, little plans, little sensations, little desires, those are natural phenomena. And they require, as best we can tell, they require, and it might be sufficient to have physical processes, primarily neurological processes that are their underlying basis, okay? So we have in Hindu, Nama and Rupa. We have consciousness, we have information flows which exist, but it's immaterial. You cannot weigh information. Information has no location. Uh, it doesn't make sense to speak of the location of our consciousness. It does make sense to speak of the location of the causes of our consciousness. So we have uh, mentality and materiality co-occurring, co-arising. Until very recently, all we knew was our experiences, our phenomenology, our consciousness. And I'm using the word consciousness with a small c. I'm not trying to imply anything cosmic outside the natural frame. That's all we knew. Uh, but uh, it's as if we lived above the waterline, in effect, and we could not see beneath it. But with modern science, increasingly, we can see what's actually happening in the neurons, in the cells, in the little synapses, in the ebbs and flows of neurochemicals like serotonin and dopamine. All of that is a necessary and perhaps efficient, minimally it's necessary, uh, for us to have the experiences we're having. So we have this opportunity increasingly to know who we are in a profoundly expanded way. We really could only know ourselves in one of two ways, in terms of our subjectivity, our actual experiences. Now we can know ourselves alongside that unfolding of subjectivity with the unfolding of objectivity, the material, physical, biological, neurological, you know, chemical processes. And when you know yourself in that way, you expand vastly how you know yourself. You know, we can be subjectively mindful of the body. Objectively, we are always body full of mind. It is always mm. the body that is making the mind continuously. And for me, that is not reductionistic. It's not mechanistic. It's actually more awe-inspiring 
more gratitude inducing than ever. And it's incredibly useful because very consistent with the Buddhist teachings of dependent origination that everything ar arises according to its causes. The mind depends on the body. Mind, nama depends upon rupa within ordinary reality. And so there's also a humility in this perspective too, where you realize, wow, I'm, you know, this time of the, the corona under the spell of the, you know, I think of love and anger in the time of corona, playing off of the Marquez novel, Love in the Time of Cholera, right? So in any case, when you realize that it is your body that is making your mind, you take it less seriously, you're able to be more skillful because you can start to intervene in the circuitry of your brain, literally, or in these dynamic processes, you can intervene in them. And for me, at least, it, it's deeply satisfying to have this much more inclusive and embodied sense of who I am in the present, continuously occurring. Wow. Wow. So, oh gosh, you know, I just have to tell you because you just reminded me, it is in Buddha's brain, four or five stages of awakening. And it's about telling your partner to pick up milk at the grocery store. Do you vaguely remember this? I must quote those stages every other week because they are so relevant to, to you know, everyday householder life is you forgot the milk, we need milk. Anyway, that's a little side note. That's great. That's great. Yeah, well, it reminds me of the uh, saying from, I think, Melarepa. He described his life of practice, right? And you could apply it on a shorter time scale, too, to specific things. He said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. By the end, nothing left. So powerful. Yeah, and that's what we're, we're developing. We're trying to help experiences come until they do and then once they start to come we're trying to help them stabilize and after they after we do the cultivation process about that then increasingly we are cultivated in that way we've moved from state to trait we've acquired trait mindfulness trait compassion trait insight trait non-attachment so let's dive into this because i feel like that's a nice segue into these seven stages that you address mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk, if you'll talk to us a little bit about these stages that you lay out for us as a pathway of practice. Oh, great. Well, the book really comes from taking a look at what is awakening? What is enlightenment? What are the, what is the, what are the upper reaches of human potential, including in secular terms, potentially, certainly religious terms if people are interested in that frame, they don't have to be we can include a secular way of looking at it. How happy can we stably be? How loving can we stably be? How resilient can we stably be? How patient? These days, I've been reflecting a lot on the Buddhist parami of the perfections, these things we develop over time. Uh, there are like six in the original list. It got expanded in Tibet to about 10. One of them is patience, which is so apropos these days, patience. Things just take longer when you've got to wash your hands every time or whatever, put gloves on or take them off or whatever. So patience. So if you think about it, if you're interested in the upper reaches of anything, competence, mastery, development of anything, whether it's how to cook, right? Watch a cooking show. Uh, how to play tennis, watch Serena Williams, okay? Study the people who are really good at it. 
So, and then we can reverse engineer what's going on with them that we can use to guide us as we move further up the path ourselves. Uh, and so when I think of the people that are really far along, the great sages, the great teachers that are in history, individuals I've known in my own life who are really quite far along and I, I find admirable and I want to learn from, I see these seven fundamental qualities in them that we can develop ourselves and we can taste them already. And over time, you know, we can help them to come, right? And then after a while, we can help them to, you know, not leave us anymore. So what are those seven? And I'll name them. And I think if you imagine uh, listening here, people you know who are farther along in practice maybe than you are, or you, you can feel your own aspiration, that longing in yourself, that movement of development. Um, you know, Suzuki Roshi put it, he said, you are perfect as you are, and you could use some improvement, right? So both are true, right? Both and. <laughs> both and, you got it. So steadiness of mind. So we have stability of attention, stability of mindfulness. And in its deeper forms, we have samadhis, shamatha practice, concentration, you know, meditative absorption, non-ordinary states of consciousness like the jhanas in the Buddhist tradition and other non-ordinary states of consciousness, uh, not involving psychedelics, although I've done them and nothing wrong with that, but I mean, just meditatively uh, called the jhanas. Okay, so steadiness of mind. Second, warmth of heart. You warm your heart, become more compassionate, kinder, friendlier, more able to hold your ground and be firm and assertive, even morally outraged sometimes, while not allowing the poison of hatred or vengeance to invade you. Third, resting in fullness, equanimity, emotional balance, being able to walk evenly over uneven ground, as the proverb has it, with a sense of fullness already, peaceful already, contented already, loving and loved already, even as the challenges of life land. So those are the first three, they kind of hang together, they're fairly accessible and down to earth, steadiness, lovingness, and fullness. The fullness topic, by the way, addresses what in Buddhism is the transition from the second to the third noble truth, from the truth of the craving that drives most of our suffering, our add-on suffering, you know, beyond the inevitable, quote-unquote, pain of life, the suffering we add to, the inherent pains of life amidst the joys of life due to craving at root. Why does craving occur? If suffering, if add-on suffering occurs due to craving, what does craving occur due to? What is its underlying cause and condition? Well, biologically and psychologically, craving is a drive state based on an underlying sense of something missing and something wrong. So as you fill yourself up and you train in the capacity to rest in a feeling of fullness already, peace, contentment, and love already as life lands on you, well, there's less and less basis for the craving that creates suffering and harm. That's the fullness material. Uh, and then we have the second uh, set of three, uh, wholeness, being whole, feeling whole, uh, accepting yourself fully, being undivided internally, uh, feeling rested more and more in a sense of being as the space in which necessary doing proceeds, uh, with a growing non-dual sense of your own consciousness, your own mind process, just right now, with everything included as a single unified wholeness. Then fifth, receiving nowness, 
uh, the sense of receiving the arising present moment, receiving it as it passes through. Uh, what does it really take to be here now? What does it really take to rest in the power of now? How do we do that continuously, right at the emergent edge of now, the front edge of now, continuously? Um, and then sixth practice and quality to cultivate, I call it opening into allness. It's a sense of being connected with everything, more and more feeling like you are a local wave in the ocean of causes whose nature is water all along. Uh, that's opening into allness, um, that, which includes the boundaries softening between self and world, which includes less and less sense of me, myself, and I. You're still a person process. There's persons exist. The sense of self becomes increasingly clear that it's constructed. It, we, there isn't that stable, self-generating, brick-like entity inside. It's much more fluid and dynamic, much more cloud-like. You lighten up a lot. Um, you know, I can say that personally, you start taking things less personally and you start seeing them more as part of a vast process in which we cherish, you know, love the, love the wave, be the sea, right? So that's opening into allness. And then the last one is really a respectful exploration of what in the world the Buddha might've been talking about when he refers to the unconditioned, the deathless, the beyond birth, beyond arising, beyond passing over. What does he mean there? Is he speaking to something within, you know, ordinary big bang reality, which is full of exotic stuff? You know, things like the stability of awareness through which things pass. So awareness is in a sense, effectively unconditioned, even though we understand that as he taught as well, human awareness um, and the awareness of any creature like squirrel, a mouse, maybe a spider, uh, is conditioned in the sense of it's due to certain causes and conditions within ordinary reality, but effectively, much like a blank piece of paper is effectively unconditioned, awareness is effectively unconditioned. It's a field of possibility that can represent anything. That's pretty cool. So as you realize more and more that conditioned phenomena are inherently impermanent and they're unreliable because they are subject to passing away, you rest increasingly in terms of finding timelessness, the seventh practice, in what is much more reliable, what is effectively unconditioned, awareness itself, the sense of spaciousness in which things occur, the sense of stillness around which motion happens of various kinds, even within ordinary reality. And then beyond that, in my view, the Buddha was indeed a transcendentalist. He was indeed speaking to you something that transcends ordinary reality. And his emphasis and his description of it was as unconditioned. He described it mainly through negation, what is not subject to arising and passing away. You know, Others in traditions, and you can see this coming in more, especially in Mahayana traditions of Buddhism, Tibetan practice, there's a sense of consciousness of some form as an attribute of the transcendental in addition to unconditioned possibility. Uh, because it's unconditioned, it's unchanging, therefore timeless. So timelessness is a necessary, in a way, attribute of what must lie beyond the unfolding of time in ordinary reality, right? Maybe also consciousness, oh, maybe also a benevolence, some quality of compassion, love, grace. Um, we're starting to move more into the territory of kind of classic religion, you know, and people can take it from there. In the book itself, I don't preach any of that stuff. And I'm really quite fine with people um, just kind of staying inside a secular frame 
of that timelessness is about kind of deconditioning ourselves from ordinary neurotic habit patterns and second resting increasingly in what is effectively unconditioned within conditioned ordinary reality fine including in profound experiences in the buddhist training process of moving through the um, steps into cessation and the cessation of any ordinary condition experience then can think of nibbana or nirvana in those terms okay me i kind of think yo <laughs> there's more to real there's more to ultimate reality than the amazing and you know big bang you know universe and i think the buddha was pointing to it as well and then you can orient to those practices in a third way, you know, in addition to the first two, you can orient to timelessness in that third way. So anyway, those are, that's what it's all about. And the point is, even during a single meditation, this is really cool. If you know, if you're, particularly if you're kind of grounded as a meditator over 20 or 45 minutes, move through them, establish steadiness of mind, bringing together a warmth of heart, a sense of fullness already, being aware of craving kind of falling away more and more you're okay, you're all right, you don't need to stress, contentment already, in which you have reasonable wishes, you have wholesome desires and ambitions and aspirations, you wanna keep rocking in the free world uh, without getting attached to the results, and then start moving more into wholeness, get a sense of your body as a whole, uh, the room as a whole, your, your own mind process as a whole, it's hanging out increasingly at the front edge of now, updating consciousness, just being alerted to the arising, the next thing, form, you know, perception, feeling tone of experiences continuously, but that's all right at the front edge, connected to everything, woof, with a growing intimation of the timelessness uh, through which time is passing. You can do that in a single meditation. And then you can look to any one of those seven and say, yeah, I, I really want to develop that. And what the book's about a lot, I'll finish here, is, is takes into account plausible recent science about what's going on in the body as we, certainly the first six of these practices, and even what's going on in the body in the seventh, in the progression into ultimate unconditioned, ultimate timelessness, nirvana, truly, you know. Uh, so, okay. You, I, you know, so I loved, um, I, it's actually the first page I bookmarked in the book was you have a guided through meditation that takes yeah. you through those seven and it's we're not kidding around. No, <laughs> we're going for it. This is like a go for it book. It's like, it's yo, it's great awesome. for beginners. And if you're uh, intermediate or advanced in your practice, it's particularly helpful because it's like, yeah, let's, let's not kid around the Buddha and others, you know, they encourage, Hey, come on up the mountain of awakening. Whatever route you take, there are these seven practices you find on all the routes, Christian route, Sufi route, secular mindfulness route, na you know, native people deserving of enormous respect, first people, indigenous, shamanic, let's call them practices. We find again and again, these seven qualities that develop in ourselves. Yeah, it's a, and it's exciting. Let's go for it. They're inviting yeah. us up there. Come see for yourself, right? Come on up. Yeah. The view is great. So if I ask you, which of these qualities do you feel is most relevant in this moment mm. when the majority of us are quarantined and yeah. um, dealing with the fallout of this COVID-19 pandemic? Where are you pointing your gaze? Uh, for me, all of them are really relevant and people take refuge actually 
in different things. I think for many people, um, for example, who have a strong sense of faith and something transcendental and, a, and an sense of it as well, uh, for them, their faith is a real refuge. And that's, that's an important thing to name. Uh, it's, uh, that said, uh, I think the first three are very relevant. We have to steady our mind. We're, we're so much news is bombarding us. We're being pulled in so many directions. Uh, my email stream has doubled uh, easily. Uh, so many things are happening. The, you just turn on the news, it's like a fire hose. You know, like, what? <laughs> Look away, come back, what? <laughs> you know, need steadiness of mind. Also, boy, it's so important than ever to realize they're scared too. They're rattled, they're hassled, they're freaked, they're dismayed, they're sad, they're appalled, they're settling in for the long haul, they're confused, they're angry. They're, they too are suffering. They too are suffering. So the compassion and the kindness and the friendliness and frankly, the commitment to others. Uh, much of the reason we do social distancing right now is for the sake of those who are vulnerable among us, right? Uh, you might have a 90% chance ballpark of coming through the worst flu of your life, but get on the other side. Well, what about the, you know, and so you say, okay, you know, that'll be it for me. But what about those other people for whom, you know, there's a 50% chance they'll die, right? We protect them too. So we keep them in our heart. And then certainly, boy, equanimity, the third practice of emotional balance and the sense of fullness already, you know, whatever crud comes, what does it land on? Does it land on a prickly, an, you know, reactive, panicked feeling of running on empty? That's trouble, that's craving, that's the red zone, that's suffering. On the other hand, does what happened, does it kind of land on a feeling of calm strength and an underlying sense of gratitude for all that you've received so far in this life, whatever tomorrow may bring, gratitude for today and everything before it, right? So I think those three come together a lot. And gosh, if I were to pick even just one, uh, I could say for myself day to day that the third one is deeply, deeply helpful because if we if we find your footing, that's the first thing. It's like we're in a storm. I have a lot of background in the mountains and rock climbing. I've taken many people rock climbing. I have a perfect safety record. So I, you know, we get through the storm. People may have been wet, you know, they might have been cold, like, whoa, we gotta get out of here quick. <laughs> but we will make it to the ground and to the bar because we're going to have a beer when all this is done. Something, you know? uh, and so I think the third, you got us, you got to, you know, you have to maintain your footing. You have to have that stable, the stability, the inner gyroscope. Because if you're rattled uh, and you're the tent pole for other people, they're going to go down too. And that's not a, that doesn't mean a kind of brittle calm or rigidity. It's, it's an adaptive, uh, gyroscope, you know, it's an adaptive quality uh, if, of equanimity, the third practice. And what really helps that is, is a sense of fullness. Like, you know, yeah, you're like resilient well-being already, calm strength already. And it's much easier to manage the latest craziness if underneath it all, there's an unshakable sense of well-being in your core. Around the edges, it's understandable to be worried, to be irritated, the power got turned off inadvertently a couple times a day at my home and which creates all a cascade of complications including the rebooting of getting on wi-fi and so forth and you know it was like 
I had an immediate reaction to it, but it passes quickly, right? But in the core of us, uh, we can have that unshakable sense of resilient well-being. Yeah, thank you so much. Which, which we can cultivate every day. That's what's also really, the truth is, I just feel we're all being tested at this time and not at all to diminish it. I'm not jumping into, oh, there'll be so many great lessons on the other side. Millions of people will die worldwide. Let's not kill ourselves worldwide. Um, and uh, lives will be shattered. So many things will be affected here. And we're really being forced to wake up from a kind of happy dream we were indulging for a while and realize how interdependently we're connected with each other in a whole new way. To realize in a whole new way how vitally important it is to keep shoring up the ties that knit us together so they are strong. Because when the weather is fine, everything's cool, no worries, you, you can be sloppy. But when the storm comes, it lands on what's there. And if the structure that it lands on has been hollowed out like by termites uh, in American public policy, easily for 40 years, the termites have been chewing away at the body politic, stripping, stripping, stripping relentlessly the social safety net, the healthcare system, civic society, while promoting division along the way. That's been very, very clear. And we were able to get away with it for quite a while, able to get away with it. We can't get away with it any longer. And the lesson is storms always come. We're living through one. There will be another storm, certainly in the lifetime of our children. What will it be? We don't even know what it will necessarily be, but something will come. So there's some big lessons about that. And at the individual level, a lot of us, a lot of us were propped up by our circumstances, events, resources, entertainments, access to different kinds of stress relief, other people, we saw them every day, you know, we were prop conveniences of a hundred kinds. We just got used to them, right? Like, where's my coffee? What? We have to wait two weeks. What? You know what I mean? We were propped up. But now so much of that has fallen away, like scaffolding has been suddenly fallen away. And the building now requires whatever it was standing upon. So we're left with what we already had inside ourselves, the fruits of our previous practices. And for a lot of people, it's kind of a thin soup. It's like running on empty. There's not that much in the bank account. And that's a wake-up call. That's a wake-up call. We need to make deposits in our inner bank account, as it were, of resilient well-being, because sooner or later, a storm will come. And that said, that wake-up call can help us wake up so that each day we can look for those little ways, a breath at a time, a synapse at a time. We can weave the good. We can weave mindfulness, compassion, resilience, gratitude, wisdom, insight, uh, skillfulness of different kinds. I'm becoming newly skillful in various ways, you know, just because I got to. I'm the guy who's going to do that now rather than someone coming to our home. So we can cultivate these these inner resources and fill ourselves up with them increasingly. Uh, and that's a really good thing. That's a really, really good thing. And now's a great time to do it. That's such a powerful reminder. And, you know, I find, especially when we're looking at the beginning of our own personal practice or the beginning of somebody's practice and we're thrown into the storm, we're thrown into these stressful moments, yeah. it, you know, 
at least for me, the nervous system was con- was conditioned to this was not the time I was going to stop and get still all of a sudden. Yeah. My my response was always to like go faster, do more, be frantic, and if I just hurry up and get it done, wow, then maybe it'll be okay one day. And this your reminder just now, and the reminder that I think we're seeing over and over again in this moment is we have to get still. You have to stop and start paying attention to these inner resources versus running on empty and just not stopping. And I just recently, I think the last three conversations I had even were with friends or colleagues. And the comment was, how do I feel busier now than ever? We're all home. Our businesses are closed. How are we more busy right now? Yeah, And your reminder to pay attention to that inner foundation, that inner scaffolding, rather than focus on like shoring up what's on the outside and crumbling is so valuable. That's so well said. Yeah. So when a person has that moment of contentment or calm strength or connection, like you and I are, Meryl, connected with each other, we're we're, we're definitely in the same page here as we dance with each other. Um, When when we have these experiences, they're precious. And we used to be able to get away with uh, not valuing them. Just, oh, there'll be another one. Well, maybe there won't be another one. Uh, right now is the time to take in the good of whatever's authentically beneficial right now. Some insight, some feeling of your own qualities. I feel good about how I've been dealing with this thing at the personal level in my family. A lot of changes were, were scrambling to uh, have our daughter come home from New York City and deal with the quarantine realities of that. And, you know, honestly, uh, the Buddha had a line that tra- could be translated readily as, you know, take gladness in your goodness. Find gladness in your goodness. It's, it's wholesome for practice to feel glad about what is good in yourself. That's not arrogance or vanity or self-congratulation. It's, it's good for practice to appreciate what's good in yourself because that uh, will motivate you to keep being that way. <laughs> I, I absolutely am taking gladness in this conversation. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I wonder if you would be so kind as to perhaps lead us through a short meditation that you feel would be relevant from the book. Oh, I would really, I move to go for it. So I'm going to name all seven and we're going to do this in about 10 minutes. And um, I've appreciated teachers of mine, of mine who did not underestimate my capacity. I think often teachers go a little lower than is the center of the group uh, and I'll leave, can leave out people who are sure more ready to go for it. So if you find it challenging, those who are listening to this, it's okay. It's all right. I'm working on this myself. And um, I taught a 10-day meditation retreat in which we took 10 days to go through these seven. Now we're gonna do it in 10 minutes, basically. Uh, but there's a taste. And if you, don't, if you can't find a taste of, of something, it's really okay, you can come back to it because these are natural to us. And with a little bit of practice, you really can center yourself more and more in them. And I, I should add, uh, the book itself uh, is full of experiential practices. I turned that 10-day meditation retreat I taught, we did, my team, into a very well-organized, well-structured, beautiful online program 
that's very affordably priced. It's very accessible to people and it's chock full of meditations. It's a great companion to the book. So I Where highly recommend it. Where can we find that? Where can on we my find website. That? Okay. Uh, it's just called the NeuroDharma Online Program. It's the online companion. The book is the companion to the program. The program is the companion to the book. Uh, now, if you sign up for the online program, I'll send you the book as a bonus for doing the program. Um, and so that's a really good thing to explore, the NeuroDharma online program. And your website is rickhanson.net, is that correct? .net, yeah, that's right. Or people can just Google my name, it'll come up pretty fast. rickhanson.net, S-O-N. All right, so let's practice together and I'll do it Please. with you. All right, so knowing that you can certainly adapt my suggestions to your own purposes and your own nature, beginning with steadying the mind, finding a posture that supports you in being both alert and is comfortable, eyes open or closed, allowing whatever sounds and thoughts feelings and other experiences to come and go as you help yourself become increasingly aware of these seven ways of being, these seven aspects of our consciousness. The first being steadying the mind. So being aware of three breaths in a row. And being aware of breathing in the area of the heart. With a gentle invitation or opening to open-heartedness, warm-heartedness. the feeling of compassion for others you care about, or kindness or love for them. Also feelings of caring coming in to you. Focusing on the feelings, not the story, not the circumstances, the feelings, which include what's it feel like to be liked, to feel loved, love flowing in, love flowing out as you warm your heart. And along with steadiness and lovingness can be a growing sense of fullness, of enough already in the moment. With a growing sense in this fullness of peace 
and contentment, along with the love that you've already welcomed, resting in fullness, steadily with a warm heart. Rest in fullness together, there can be a falling away of anxiety or grasping, any drivenness, frustration falling away, resentments and hurts falling away. Steadily. lovingly at ease. body as a whole, with a sense of your mind as a whole, mind being the totality of your consciousness as a whole. Feeling undivided, with a growing stability of simply being. Being whole, undisturbed. with a boundless heart. practice as well, staying in the present with a sense of continually letting go as uh, your consciousness is continually updated and allowing yourself not to know, not to control anything, abiding as a whole mind unfolding at the front edge of now.
as if you are being continually alerted by the freshness of whatever is arising. In this freshness can be a growing feeling of what we know conceptually that whatever is happening now and now in our experience is the local result of a vast network of causes. We are all like a local rippling in the tapestry of reality with edges softening between the body and the world, edges softening between the mind and the universe. Realizing that this hearing and this seeing, this thought, is the universe manifesting locally. A vast impersonal process manifesting as you continuously. perhaps with associated feelings of awe, gratitude, With this sense of being an open process without edges, there could be an intuition of the space, a space in which all this is occurring. Perhaps an intuition of a vastness, a timelessness in which time is passing. 
perhaps a feeling or intuition of what is always just before the present moment, a field of unconditioned possibility that allows conditioned reality to arise and pass away. minute or two of this, uh, if you like, you can continue to meditate in this way while opening your eyes or moving a little and practicing with integrating the feeling of these seven qualities of consciousness even as you look around, feel your body in the chair, feet on the floor. Establishing yourself at home, at home. Steady, loving, peaceful, whole in the present. With a sense of connection to all that is. an intuition of timelessness. Good way to live and to keep developing so that after a while, um, nothing leaves and you are rested more and more in these qualities as you still engage life. Thank you so much for that practice, that um, invitation to carry that with you as you engage in life is so valuable and needed. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. And it's, to me, it's really important <laughs> to appreciate that this is not esoteric or exotic. We all have a feeling for this. And if you imagine that in what, 12, 14 minutes to kind of <laughs> sort of drop in, uh, this has to be our home. This is our true home. Uh, otherwise we couldn't just drop in fairly quickly like this. And, and this is the invitation for all of us. This is the birthright of all of us and to stabilize and establish these, these ways of being increasingly for others too. Because as we, as these are more and more established in, in us, 
uh, we're more and more able to be a refuge for others too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we wrap up today, I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Moon Organics. Moon Organics creates a beautiful, mindful line of skincare products that are handcrafted with organic botanical ingredients. I love Susan's products. And I just had the good fortune to do one of her virtual facials, which was the biggest treat in this moment of quarantine. My skin um, definitely has been showing the signs of stress, of staying at home, of not drinking enough water. And uh, this facial was just this little mini dose of luxury that was so needed in this moment. So if you are interested, check out moonorganics.com. And remember, Mindful Minute listeners save 10% on products and services using code MINDFUL10. M-I-N-D-F-U-L-10. Thanks to Susan and Moon Organics. Thanks to y'all for listening. I will talk to you on Monday. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you would take time to leave a review or share this with somebody you think would enjoy it. To learn more about my in-person and virtual offerings, visit MerylArnett.com or check me out on Instagram at Meryl Arnett. Thanks y'all, see you next week.